Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. My name is Rich Barago, known on Twitter as Mets Killing Me, and you are listening to the 51st edition of the Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. So we hope that in the midst of um, everything that's going on in the world, we can give you a little baseball talk tonight, have a little fun doing it. And with no, with no further ado, I'd like to bring on my co-conspirators in the Metsian podcast first. We will start in the great borough of Brooklyn in the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn and bring on Mr. Mike LaColent. Mike, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, chugging right along. How are you, Rich? Doing well, same thing. Um, you know, chugging right along is a good way to put it. And so we'll go to another borough of New York City. We'll go to Manhattan and we'll bring on the uh, the CEO, the COO, and the mastermind of the Messian <laughs> podcast, Sam Rich and Mike. We'll bring on Mr. Sam Maxwell. Sam, where are you tonight, and how are you tonight? Well, uh, I'm once more in the exact spot that I was last week on location in the courtyard. Well, the, the balcony that is my front, my front door to the courtyard that, uh, that I'm, I'm so lucky to have, a hidden gem of New York, the piano factory in New York City. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, just, just going about life uh, the only way I know how, which is, you know, basically living day-to-day day, day day on a paycheck, uh, doing Postmates around this town. It's weird getting used to the traffic and the way everything is operating right now. Um, it, 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 you know, it's basically making me think that it's going to take a while, whether or not everybody you know, opens everything up, it's going to take a while psychologically for people to get back to normal. It certainly will. And, you know, we're hearing um, maybe things gradually start to open in early June. Um, that's a, you know, guess as much as anything else. I guess the good news is we're seeing less of a drain on resources now, fewer hospitalizations across the tri-state area, uh, which is a good sign. And um, But it, it's like, you know, it, it's the very, very beginning of what will need to be many, many, many good signs before we can even get to uh, some semblance of normalcy. And to help us talk normalcy, Mets, coronavirus, everything else, we have a special guest with us tonight, Mr. Phil Maylard. Phil is a, uh, a friend of Sam's. And let me tell you a bit about Phil. Phil is a director. Phil and Rod Houston met as communications majors over 30 years ago at Hofstra University. Their friendship soon blossomed into their first business together as DJs on campus. Now, in 1989, they founded Shoot Till You Drop, 
a music video production company with Rod as executive producer and Phil as director. During the following four years, the award-winning company scored many successes while helping to develop three future directors. With industry changes and new opportunities, they decided it was time to create something new again. So in 2013, they founded Tomorrow Media Inc. And Phil, um, in addition to being, and I was reading some of your, uh, your credits, you've worked with some of the big ones, um, and I'll let you talk about that. In addition to your work here, you know, in, in the music production side of things, you're also a big Mets fan. And yes. um, so if you could, can you take us a little deeper into what you've done with your career? And I find it fascinating in, um, in the music industry. And then also tell us um, how you became a Mets fan and, and how you got on this train of, uh, of up and down that, that we as Mets fans go through. Sure. Well, thanks, guys, for inviting me to the podcast. Um, as Sam can attest to, we spent many an inebriated night at Plan B looking at the television and, and wondering what the hell is going on with our team. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and notice I put inebriated in the same sentence because you have to be sometimes watching the Mets. And, that, and just for back, back story, I'm a Mets, Jets, and Knicks fan, so you can see I've been uh, sports quarantined for over 35 years so because my team stink. But anyway, um, we started, Rod and I did meet at Hofstra. Um, we, you know, we said, like I said, we're DJs and together, and that was our first kind of business together. And um, we left school. Rod got a job at Tommy Boy Records, and uh, I was working in commercials and on uh, television shows, commercials, as a production assistant electrician. And one day he asked me if I wanted to direct a music video. I had no real thoughts about being a director. And I said, sure, not realizing what I was doing. And uh, directed my first video for a group called Too Poetic. The song's called God Made Me Funky. And uh, I knew three words. I knew cut, action, and lunch. And that was it. And I tried not to use them at the wrong time turn to shoot, but I, I found that I had a propensity for working well with, with people. Um, I was a pretty good multitasker, which being a director has to be, and communicator with people, so that I found a niche that I really liked, and um, we started, you know, this little company, Shoot Till You Drop, and that name came from a, when I was working on commercials, there was a, a direct, uh, uh an assistant cameraman. And back then, obviously, they used to load film. And I would get an idea of how long the shoot was going to be, depending on how much film we have. And so I would ask him, I said, man, you know, how much film do we got? And he used to say, we're going to shoot till we drop. And so we took that name and made it uh, the production company. Um, my second video, which has become a cult classic, um, and if people knew the real story of how that video got done, they would shake their heads. But that was De La Soul Buddy, and that was my second video. And um, and it just kind of started from there. And, and uh, we just went along. Like, we brought a lot of people along with us. Uh, one thing I'm proud about Shoot to Drop was we gave a lot of people opportunities in the company, not only as directors, but audio people, lighting, whatever it is they wanted to do. I had no no qualms about letting people follow their interests and uh some people were kind of weird about that but it never bothered me and uh it 
this kind of humbles me sometimes to this day when I run to people say, oh, you know, you gave me my first job or you remember this and remember that. So, so that's kind of cool. It's always about the we, not the me. And uh, so now years later, we formed Tomorrow Media, and we are currently really doing documentaries. I'm doing a documentary on a Calypso singer named the Mighty Sparrow from Trinidad, Tobago. He's 84 years old. He would be considered the king of Calypso. Um, his career started in 1957. And even to this day, uh, Maggie Sparrow tries to perform every now and then. Um, the object of the film is hope to get him nominated to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as the first Calypso artist. So anybody listening, go on to YouTube, put in the Mighty Sparrow. You'll see tons of his songs. You'll hear tons of his songs. Look him up, look him up on Wikipedia. He's a fantastic talent, fantastic artist. He's just been hidden under the cloak of Calypso music and where that uh, where that's played. So we have some other things we've been we've been working on, trying to develop some other things uh, at the same time. And um, I've had several conversations over the last month and a half with people in my business about about coronavirus, what this has done to our industry, as we get ready to talk about what it's doing to baseball. It's happening across the board because a lot of people in my industry shoot baseball so or shoot sports. So television, video go hand in hand with the subject which we are, you know, going to proceed on tonight. And so that's my, in a nutshell, my kind of career background. As far as the Mets are concerned, uh, interestingly enough, I live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. So, Mike, you have another Brooklynite on the, on the line with you. Uh, I am literally six blocks from where Everett's Field stood. So I was born, obviously, in 62 when the Mets were formed, so I missed the Dodgers. But the Dodgers were a big thing in my household from the time I can remember. Um, it was a sense of pride to my grandmother, uh, Emma Jean Yard, who was from Trinidad. Emma Jean actually worked for the Department of State and worked for Governor Cuomo, Mario. And uh, I just remember as a kid, she talked about Jackie Robinson, this and Jackie Robinson, that. And I used to tell jokes to people. I said, when I asked my grandmother, so mom, who paid, who played uh, um, second base for the Dodgers? Jackie Robinson. Well, who played first base? Jackie Robinson. Well, well who <laughs> sold you the hot dog? Jack, Jackie Robinson. Well, who drove you in the cab? Jack, so Jackie Robinson did everything to her. It wasn't about baseball. It was about Jackie Robinson. And so um, Jackie Robinson's presence and, and the anniversary of his debut was just, uh, what, three, four days ago? In Ebbets Field uh, rings a lot to me, resonates a lot to me, because uh, I pass by Ebbets Field quite often. And, uh, and obviously the birth of the Mets was because, and the colors were from the Giants leaving and the Dodgers leaving. So they combined the colors of those two teams to come up with the blue and, and orange for the New York Mets. And so um, my father was a massive Mets fan. Uh, dating myself uh, early on, it was drives in the car as a kid, listening to the Mets broadcast on AM radio. Uh, that's why Bob and Lindsay, Lindsay Nelson and Ralph Kiner are like, were like uncles to me because every year for six months I heard their voices before I could even talk. And um, so, you know, it's kind of close to the best when I think about them because some of the poignant moments in your early life are spent with those guys as the, as the backdrop to whatever you were doing. 
And uh, the first time I can remember visuals of the Mets, obviously it was 69. I was seven years old, really starting to be cognizant of your world and actually to the point where your memory works. (laughs) And so I remember um, watching the Mets on the black and white TV and uh, particularly Don Clendenin stood out in my mind because of the way he stretched for the baseball. I used to say, man, that's got to hurt. Because he would stretch his leg out almost to second base to catch the ball. Um, but my hero, uh, my my early baseball hero was Cleon Jones. Um, something about the way, I mean, Tommy Ag was amazing, but something about Cleon was just smooth, man. He was just, he was like butter in the field on the plate. Um, so that became my my first sports hero. I had three at the time, uh, Joe Namath, Walt Frazier, and uh, Cleon Jones. And so uh, that was the beginning. I, I guess you could say the beginning of the end, uh, Mets, Mr. Mets killing me. <laughs> my beginning of the end started around that time, and um, it's just continued ever since. And so uh, the, the one, I, my father, even though he was a Mets fan, did not like to go to the games. The one game I went to with my father was in 1972, and I was uh, just 10 years old, and it was the Mets against the Padres, and we went because Willie Mays had just joined the team. So I actually got to see Willie Mays playing the game at Shea Stadium and uh, with against the Padres. I think Nate Colbert at the time was the big bat for the Padres, and uh, so that's how it all started for me. Well... It's always interesting to hear people's stories of how they became Mets fans. That's certainly a good one, Phil, and thank you for sharing. And, and certainly your career sounds amazing with some of the work you've done. And, and you did mention this um, while you were speaking about the coronavirus. And even starting the shows during the pandemic with, you know, how it's basically a check-in. How's everybody doing? What's everybody thinking? So, so we'll, we'll do a minute on that. Um, I, wanna, I do want to start with this, though, because I think this is quite poignant. Um, I saw this yesterday where I find the, the analogies between the Spanish flu of 1918 and the current pandemic, you know, the similarities to be off the charts. Um, the Spanish flu was deadly. This is deadly. Um, in 1918, they, they, did social, they did social distancing. They didn't call it that, but what, the only way they could treat this thing was to keep people, if you were the sick person, they made you go stand over there and everybody went away from me because this was killing people left and right, and they just had to isolate the sick. Um, so that sounds you know, eerily familiar. But the point I'm getting to is this. Um, by the summer of 1918, people had become frustrated with staying home all the time. And when World War I ended in November, we've all seen the pictures. We've seen you know, Times Square loaded with people, everybody whooping it up. You know, It was like, okay, you know, we're sick of being in the house. The war's over. We're going to go celebrate, not only in New York, everywhere. And apparently the second wave of this thing worldwide killed 30 to 50 million people um, because what happened was they kind of got a dip, and then people forgot about it because of the euphoria of the war ending. The second outbreak was worse than the first. So where I'm going with it, you could tell, is we've got to maintain caution. Um, can't open up too fast. That's the worst thing we could do. That's my opinion. Um, but I do want to get everybody else. So my questions for you are, how are you personally doing? 
Um, what's your outlook at this point, and to what degree are you missing sports? So we'll start it out with Mike. Mike, how are you doing uh, right now, and um, what are your thoughts, and where's your head with it, and how are you doing without sports? You know what, personally speaking, uh, I'm okay. Like I said, chugging right along. I'm still working. I'm being. I'm out there being essential. Uh, and the mood on the streets is still good. And, uh, you know, I, I did some shopping earlier this morning for myself, the family, and my mother. And I told the guy at the supermarket, I was like, you're doing a crack job in here, man. And he really is. He's keeping everything going. And, uh, you know, if I can't grab something today, it'll be there tomorrow. So there's no rush at the stores between the supermarket, which is just two and a half blocks from me, and my, my grocery store around the corner, who's remained open, uh, you know, and, and, and productive. He's getting supplies, and, you know, I haven't been short of of items and, and necessities. And I guess that's a good thing. I, I, I hope, you know, that everyone's getting their hands on the basics and things that they need and even some creature comforts to get us through this. So, you know, I just want to give to-dos to everybody out there who's making all this happen, you know, truck drivers. Uh, I know my man at the grocery store, he's dead tired, but he's coming in like a trooper. So I want to give to-dos to everyone, and, and that includes the healthcare workers, everybody. Everybody who's still out there and chugging along, you know, uh, I can say for me personally, I can't speak for my wife and my son because they're locked up inside. Uh, life hasn't changed all that much for me because I'm still living this structured life, you know, going to bed on time, waking up, and going to work. Uh, but I do fear bringing something home to them. Uh, it's always something on my mind, and every time I drop off stuff to my mom, you know, she has the underlying symptoms, and, you know, uh, it would it would just destroy me if, uh, you know, I'd be the reason that uh, she took a left turn in this battle. Uh, so that's where I am. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in a good mood. I'm, I'm at peace, you know, and I like what I hear. Uh, I like uh, we seem to be flattening the curve, so to say. But like you say, you know, that second wave, be ready for it. Expect the worst and hope for the best. And I'm in lockstep with you, Rich. Uh, you know what? Celebrating too early, that may be a mistake. You know, in China, Wuhan, they celebrated with a, a magnificent light show, by the way. Uh, but it was a celebration nonetheless. And now there's, you know, scuttlebutt of a second round. Uh, the outlook, day by day, let the facts speak for themselves. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to get too political, if, if at all. So I'll, I'll veer from that. I'll just say that the local governors... Uh, They've been putting on a good show. Uh, they seem trust, trustworthy, and you know, <laughs> uh, I'll be following. I'll be following their dictates. You know, so it, it's a good, it's a good uh, team effort that they're collaborating on. It's good to see. And uh, you know, do I miss sports? It's a strange time, so I, I guess we have to put our priorities in order. I do miss them. I wish we were watching baseball. Hell, I wish we were watching XFL games for for that matter. Uh, but you know what, Rich? I'm not hurting for lack of sports. I'm reading books. I'm doing other things. Like I said, this is a time to use your, 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 your free time at home creatively, and that's what I'm trying to do. Very good. Sam, same questions. 
There's there's a few places I want. First of all, before we go down that rabbit hole, I just want to say, Phil, you and I are going to have to go down the musical rabbit hole at some point. I love what you're working on sure. regarding uh, the the sparrow. Um, but but also what Mike was saying, you know, since I'm out there in terms of the uh, the seeing the grocery workers, seeing these these non um, you know, non-hospital working essential people. And they they really are working very hard. They're dealing with a lot of people who are really resistant to the fact that we all have to work together in a, in a calm, you know, social manner while obviously doing the social distancing, you know. I, I mean, I've showed up to places where, you know, it was probably going to be an hour wait, and there were there were 20 other people, but one person wanted to wanted their question answered, and they got hostile about it. And and you can't do that. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. You know, you can't be handling it that way. Um, and, and and so you you got to give credit to all these grocery workers, especially because they, you know, I I think a lot of death of of both illnesses and deaths have come from the grocery element of it and it, it, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable um you know i i try not to i'm not like looking at myself as essential when you you know you you pass by hospitals and they have tents in central park next to them you know you can't you you gotta have perspective on it um but at the same time and going back to what I was talking about with uh, the psychological element of it, you have to you have to be thinking about what the grocery workers and and what the delivery people are doing for everybody's psyche because you know there's just a moment of being able to joke about it, just being like, hey, how you holding up? Here's your food. Great. All right. You know, just stay healthy. Great. You know, you just have a moment of humanity. Uh, and, and and there is something to be said about that. Um, you know, I, I think it's surprising to me still how many people want to just, you know, approach, want, want to approach you. You know, it does come up that with my deliveries where people just want me to put it in front of the door. But I'm I'm still surprised at the, how many people are opening it without a mask, without gloves, and accepting it to me. And obviously, I have gloves on, I have a mask on. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's the same thing that you you saw today. As I was passing that hospital on Fifth Avenue, you go a few more blocks and you see that people, even if even if the people are in masks, even if the people are in gloves, people, when it's this nice out, can't contain themselves, especially when they've been inside all week. They want to get outside. And there were a lot of people gathering uh, near Central Park and probably within Central Park today as well. So... There, you know, it, it. But again, you know, as long as those people, it, it's it's funny to me when you see somebody biking on a, you know, on a city bike without any gloves on, but a mask. Like little contradictions of that nature. You're on a city bike. You're on a bike that's being shared by the public. If there was ever anything other than gas pumps that probably have the coronavirus on them a lot, it's probably those city bikes. So I, you know, it's it's been interesting observing this world of Manhattan. And again, I keep going back to the fact that it's been supercharged for 400 years. Ever since the Dutch founded this place, it's been supercharged for 400 years. 
and that and that's why when you see it, like it's hard to think that things are going to go back to normal that quickly. I think you're right. I think um, you know if, if it's a gradual going back to things that that right there isn't normal. But even when it's like okay, you know, restaurants and bars are open, which I'm hearing will be the last open. Let's say that's August first. How many people are going to go flocking to these places? And if they do. You know, they're going to act differently. This may have changed us maybe permanently with the way we go about things. But, Phil, let's go to you. Um, how are you holding up in the midst of all this? You did mention the impact on your business. Um, how are you holding up personally? And, you know, what are your thoughts on uh, your outlook and, and also how you're dealing with sports? It's, uh, it's fascinating because um, being in the business that I am, we pay a little. We pay attention to a lot of details. Um, as as somebody who's a director who's responsible for images that we see and dealing with the people that are in front of the camera, you have to really do something which a lot of people in this country don't do. They hear, but they don't listen. And what I mean by that is, hearing is like Charlie Brown's teacher: wah 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 wah, but you're not listening to the words. And it's the same thing. With this virus, you have to listen and look at things. And so what I see is, and we talked about, you just mentioned what going back to normal. Normal is not going to be what we, what we just knew. You know, when the dust settles, that means whatever is there is going to be the new normal. I remember uh, years and years ago when somebody was uh, tampering with bottles of aspirin. And all of a sudden, they changed all packaging on everything. So everything now had a twist off, had to have a little ring underneath it so that you know it wasn't open before. Pill bottles, you had to squeeze. You know, the tops of cans were different. Everything became different than what it used to be. Well, that became normal after a while. 9-11 happened, and all of a sudden, you got to take your belts off, and when you go to the airlines and... Certain things you can't do. The mailboxes changed. I mean, people get a little package of powder on it. They're freaking out. Well, you know, that becomes a normal way of life after a little while because it just adds to what you do and you, you're cognizant of, it, cognizant of it. So this, too, will have its take its toll, and eventually it will become the new normal. So the only difference is that this is happening worldwide. And um, we've never had that before. Even the, even the flu of eight, 1918, it didn't affect 130, 140 countries. I mean, this virus is in Fiji, for God's sake. So everybody's being affected by it. It's a world economy, which is connected together, unlike 1918. So it's really turbocharged and on steroids, No, no just using a, a sports analogy. <laughs> but... It is on it is on turbocharged and steroids, so it's going to be fascinating what we do. I think Sam, you made a good point, and uh, it's about people are looking at humanity and the way we treat people just in general, and be thankful for those people that are living on the front line without the virus. There, I think it's a good time for people to start practicing that moving forward, because then it wouldn't be something that you have to dig for next time this happens. This is something that you live with every day, and it becomes part of your life. So if we take an opportunity to look at what the virus is providing us, it's providing us insight into human nature, 
It's providing us insight into this country. It's providing us insight on what the future is. And so if you listen and not hear, you can find a path that will get you to where you want to be as things change and morph in the very near future and in the future years ahead of you. And so it's not going to be so much a blow to the system to see the changes. As far as myself is concerned, I'm concerned about my business. Um, you know, I'm not taking anything away from iPhones, but the thought of the thought of shooting everything with an iPhone is not very attractive to me. <laughs> it's nothing against the iPhone. It's just, it's just the word of shooting with a phone and not a camera, uh, even though the phone has a camera on it. But that's the way the world is going. I mean, I think um, as I talked to many friends of mine, and this is not just here, I've spoken to friends of mine in the business in South Africa. I have a good friend of mine in Tanzania I spoke to yesterday. He's on a show called Safari Live. And uh, they were shut down, and those guys continuing shooting on iPhones. If anybody wants to look up Safari Live, they have, they have Facebook, and um, you could Google them. Um, it's, it's basically the, the Safari Live was several camera crews in different areas in, in parts of Africa, and they would cut to that particular camera crew if a uh, hyenas are chasing something or the lions are doing something. So that's what they do. And um, so now they're looking for uh, – uh, a streaming partner to stream the show. So everything is changing. Uh, but as my grandfather used to say, water finds its level. So even in this, things will level off and find their place. I had a long conversation with a very good friend of mine. His name is Duke Thorne. Duke is a cameraman. All he shoots is sports. 99% of everything he shoots is sports. He does a lot of stuff for Fox baseball, all your playoff games. Duke Thorne. He's usually the guy that walks the uh, guy crossing the plate. He walks them from the plate to the dugout. And that's one of his main shots. And he's in Arizona. We spoke yesterday. And he said, he said that, you know, they're talking about this possibility of the spring training games sites. There's 14 sites in Arizona. Um, obviously, if they do that there, it's not just the players that to be quarantined, but it's the staff for all the teams that will be in And the same thing in Florida. It's the staff. It's the television people. It's the announcers. It's everybody. So it's a massive undertaking you're talking about. And then, God forbid, even in that quarantine situation, somebody <clears throat> gets the virus because then it's going to be panic. So personally, I don't think there's going to be a baseball season. Um if there is, it's almost going to be like the World Baseball Classic. I think it'll be exhibition-type games. I just don't think there'll be a season. I don't think you'll be able to do a playoff thing. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. Um, it's for entertainment purposes, and if they can get that going just alone, I think that'll be a major accomplishment um, because there's just so many moving parts, guys. And then, and then we're talking about the people's families or the cabooses on that train, and they they have uh, they take a hit as well. So um, the other thing you mentioned, Sam, was the second wave of this virus will come uh, as the weather gets warm. People will go out just because they get cabin fever and it's warm and it's hot, and uh, people are under uh, understanding that this is, that the virus doesn't like heat. Well, we hope so. We don't know, <clears throat> but we hope so. 
but even if it doesn't, it might come back around when the weather changes again in the fall or the winter. So the thing is, guys, and people listening, that there's going to be a new normal. What we knew uh, just four months ago will not return the way we saw it. It's not going to be that way. And people are going to be a little nervous even about going and sitting at a crowded restaurant, uh, a ballpark, basketball game, football games, you know, romanticizing about what that is to watch it and be around it is part of our, our DNA as sports fans. But I don't know. This is, this is, there's no precedent for this. This is not, uh, there's no playbook we can look at this and say, oh, this is what we do because, you know, it's play number 15. You know, there's, none, there's nothing like this. So we are really making up as we go along. The main thing is to uh, take it in small doses, what, what does come back, appreciate when it does, when things do come back, appreciate that and the people around you even more so than ever before because now we can realize it could be, it could change overnight. Um, but I am fascinated to see, because baseball out of all the sports has the hardest logistics, and baseball out of all the sports lasts the longest uh, season, and during a time when um, summertime, man, you know, summer, spring, and going early fall are the times when people are out. Uh, baseball is like a nice, long, slow walk. You know, you don't, it's not uh, supercharged like football or basketball where you can't miss a, play, miss a play. You know, you go to a baseball game and get up and walk around the park and you can chill and um, the backdrop of, of the announcers, even on radio or television, is part of what, what you like about baseball. And those things are the things I think I will miss most of all. Um, and uh, actually, I think living and dying with a team each day, having a respite from that's kind of cool for a minute, but I also miss that. Um, I miss that quite a bit. And Rich, uh, before you take over, I just want to say I'm already used to being the only one sitting in a section of the upper deck at City Field, so I think, you know, I'll, uh, I'll be, it won't be that bad of a segue for me. <laughs> that's it, that's fun. Hopefully, uh, yeah, I think we'll all be uh, – I think if any one of us were at City Field, we'd be the only one at City Field you know, for a while anyway. But that's a great segue to the next thing I wanted to get into. Um, so about the prospect of having a season or not, um, Howie Rose joined Twitter this week. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting how we – you know, Chris Majkowski always did the Twitter for the booth, and, and occasionally he'd flip a question to Howie, and Howie would, would say something. Actually, he asked him one of my, about one of my tweets at one point. I felt terribly honored about that. Um, I think it was a stupid pun I made, and I guess Howie laughed at it and read it out loud. So uh, anyway, um, but the Daily News did an interview with, with Howie asking him about Twitter and asking about a few things. And I, I want to talk about one thing in particular. So they asked Howie, what about a baseball season this year? And his answer really was, look, as a fan, as a person who loves baseball, of course I want there to be a season. And he, he, he said he didn't care. He didn't care if it was 60 games or 80 games. You know, as long as everybody went into it with a handshake, and hey, these are the rules here, boys, he'd be thrilled. But he said, what about, um, what about the, the ugly part of that? So, and, and where he went with it is, he said he himself is in a high-risk category. He's over 65. And so if he's going to be at the park and media 
television people, Phil, you know, people who do television production. Not that you're 65, but what I'm saying is that people who do what you do, who might be in a high-risk category for whatever the reason, would be at, at the ballpark, right? So if a player, you know, or anyone gets it, but let's just say a player contracts it, you know, because he or she was being served food in the hotel or in an Uber to the ballpark or the driver or what have you. So now, okay, that's unfortunate, but the players are not in high-risk categories by their, their youth, their shape, and all that. What if that gets around to Howie or someone who is in a high-risk category? You have to think about all these things. So where I'm going with this is my next question is, and I'll Sam, I'll start with you here, is given the peripherals on this, because we talk about, well, should it be in Arizona, should it be in Florida, Arizona, do the, do the, re, the, you know, the, the league differently, all that stuff, let's get going, you know all of that. We've never really talked about, though, the peripherals on it. You know, what about all these other people, the groundskeepers, the broadcasters, the media who would now be exposed? Um, With all that, where do you stand on how much you think there should be a season and the likelihood of it? So, Sam, why don't you take it from there? You know, Earlier in the podcast, at some point, it popped into my head, actually, and it's outside of what the point Howie is making, saying that, you know, the the, um, the players aren't uh, necessarily high risk. But how many times every single year, whether it's the Mets or any other team, do we hear about a flu going around or a stomach flu or a stomach virus or this or that? It's a clubhouse. It's dirty. You know, even even in this day and age, uh, as as high tech as the place is, and ha- as clean as I'm sure they have, they have the place being scrubbed every day by by people that were not there back in the the heyday of of, uh, of the golden age of baseball. Um, but at the same time, like like it's not just those elements of it, and 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 that's the thing too is that what about you know, two to three or four of the 25-man roster, however big it is now, gets the stomach flu uh, or coronavirus, and um, the rest get it as well, but they don't know that they passed it to Howie Rose or whoever, Rich Catino or any, uh, uh, you know, high-risk, if you will, person that's going to be in that room. Um, it is something to think about. And, and this is where you wonder, how do you get this done? And that's where it's all, it's weird that collective bargaining is coming at the same time that this stuff is coming, because you're going to basically have to collectively bargain if baseball has any way of coming back. Now, the only window baseball necessarily has is the fact that the idea is in terms of predictions, that, that by June things should subside, but by the fall we could see it come back. We need to have some some sort of better battle. We need a vaccine. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's basically it, – baseball is the only sport, when you really think about it, that has this wiggle room, that has this window. Um, and But at the same time, they have all these different complications. So it's it's very – it's frustrating because, yeah, like we're, you know, how he wants 60 games, how he wants 80 games, how he wants however many games you can get, regardless of what kind of, you know, whether or not you just cancel a playoff, cancel a World Series. But you do have to think of, of the risk that he's talking about. And you have to think of it not just among those 
folks, but I mean, you know, this, this is taking some random folks apparently that you didn't think it was, it was going to take, you know, even, even if like, you know, somebody like the Fountain of Wayne singer wasn't all that renowned. Uh, he was, he was rather young. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's other names of that nature that are, that are being taken that aren't just the high risk as we keep talking about. Um, and, 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 and can somebody remind me exactly of the name of the uh, photographer, the sports photographer this took? His last name was Kersey, Clause. I think. Uh, he was a, uh... He was a relative of John Anthony, Clark, right? Anthony. Anthony. Anthony Clark, yeah, Anthony, yeah. Yes. So, you know, again, we got it. it. It's a really tough idea. Now, you know, like, like is you, that's the thing. You don't want anybody to die. I mean, it's only been like one person that's ever died from a fastball hitting them in the head. I think maybe a couple people. But, you know, in terms of the modern era, I think it goes back to, um, oh, man, Mike, you've been, you've been going to this era a lot. So what, what, can you remind me of what I'm talking about? But, but, but after, after I'm done with my point, my point being is that one death is too many. You know, uh, uh, baseball's been lucky to not have more really horrific stuff, even if, like, like certain things, whether it's suicide, whether it's just mental illness, anything of that nature that you don't even talk about other than what happens on the, the field of play. You know, one death is too many. And so how do you go about this? It's, it's a really delicate situation because you want baseball. It, you know, it is. And, and um, you're right. You know, you think about it because here I am as a fan saying, go, go, go. You know, the minute that the, the, um, the CDC says it's okay and we think it might be a, a risk that that, you know, is pretty low, I'm like, I'm, my engine is revving, baby. I want baseball now. I don't care if it's in Florida. I don't care if it's in Arizona. I don't care if no fans. I want to watch it. You know, I'm sick of watching Netflix. You know, I, but you think about it, and you think about, you know, the risk doesn't stop with the players. It doesn't. You know, the, the photographer is a great example. The, the, the gentleman from the Post, you know, leaving two kids. I think he's 48 years old. Um, so... You know, and and it really it really makes you pump the brakes on this stuff and not think about what you want so much as 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 reality. So, Mike, I'll go to you next on that one. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? You know, and I will throw one more thing. How he said in the interview, he said, if baseball were to start again, how great would it be if it started on July fourth? You know, independence. We have independence from this virus to a point where we're going to get our sports back. But I thought I'd throw that in. But Mike, where are you with it? Well, you know, Rich, you, me, uh, Phil, you as well, we remember labor strife in this industry. We remember them, you know, being more than happy to go on strike in a battle over money. Less benefits, more money. Uh, so in this instance, you know, I turn, a, I turn a cold shoulder to their insistence on restarting the game. They're just not taking, as you say, Rich, the collateral considerations into consideration here. Uh, and, and, you know, you just have to do this smartly. So, whereas I, I have little compassion for the billionaires, you know, out there, and and perhaps a, a smidgen more for the millionaires out there. If they're coming back and playing before empty stadiums and not generating revenue, 
Why bother? Why bother? And again, as you say, Rich, you know, all the health considerations, all the collateral workforce that you're going to put at risk. Why? Why? What purpose will this serve? We're not out of this yet. As Phil pointed out, we've never been through this before. This is our first time. You know, we started out a little behind the curve. Uh, We seem to be catching up. Uh, But other parts of the nation are only now starting to spike. So how, logistically, how are you going to, you know, ship players from location to location? And like I said, I'm against, you know, creating a, a small village in Arizona or Florida or both. You know, there's a lot of unnecessary things that, uh, you, you know, that are that are on the table here that I, I just think people need to get their priorities straightened out. Uh, again, if they're so willing to go on strike over money, don't come crying to me now saying that you need to get this, you know, restarted and, and we need to get it done pronto. No, 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 no. Come on, rethink this, guys, and and get it right. That's it. Phil, where are you with the whole yes, thing? Yes, sir. Well, you know, I think about the um, – I'm going to quote the great Reverend Jesse Jackson, who many times says, keep hope alive. And that's what uh, people in the industry are trying to do. Howie Rose, in his thoughts, and I read them, and I thought to myself, Howie, come on, man, you know much better than that, that what you're saying is nice, it, it's cute. You know the real deal is what you and I, what we are talking about now. It ain't going to happen. You know, when I spoke to Duke today, you're talking about, let's say logistics in, in Arizona, 14 spring training facilities. You know how many camera operators they have to fly in to cover 14 baseball fields. That's just the camera operators. Never mind the trucks that have the, that, that have the rolling studios in it. Never mind the utility people that have to set up the cameras. Never mind the technical people that have to do the uplinks. You're talking about thousands of people. And if one of them is compromised and takes something back home to their family, what kind of repercussions we're talking about? It's not happening. But here's the dirty secret. All this is about television contracts. All the major sports are driven and pay their salaries from television contracts. So they have an obligation to those people they do, that to deliver a certain amount of games to fulfill those contracts or else it's really going to be some you-know-what because – NBC and Fox will turn around and say, okay, well, we, we get it, coronavirus, but you know, we contracted for a certain amount of games and contingencies, the least games we can get is 80, and we ain't got that. So, you know, all them billions of dollars we gave you, uh, we get some of that back, right? And so that's what this is about. It's about television contracts. NFL is, is, is talking a whole lot of fire and desire about the season going on and they're doing the draft. Uh, tomorrow, virtual draft, we'll see whether that goes well. But their television contract is massive. And it's not just the television contract. It's because broadcast television already is reeling from losses of viewership. Majority of people are streaming. That's why uh, entities like Yahoo and and Facebook uh, 
they stream now, they get a contract to stream MLB games, a certain amount of games per year. You know, they could, they could survive if, if the seasons don't go. But NBC, CBS, they need that money. Um, so that's what this is about. And logistically, um, as Michael just said, I just don't, I just don't see it happening. Howie Rose, God bless him, but he knows exactly what this is, and he didn't mention any of that in in his article. And, and I heard him on WFAN um, at the same time the Daily News article came out. I heard his interview, and and he like again, he's a, he's in the media. He knows what this is about. He knows how many people, the average person does not see what happens behind the lens. They see in front of the lens. You know, I've worked on commercials and and music videos where there's 40 people to get a shot that people think is really simple to get. So there's a massive undertaking of humanity that creates the images and the audio that we see and hear. You know, Fox uh, does amazing, I think their broadcast of baseball is the best. Um, but they, the reason why is because they put mics everywhere. There's cameras everywhere. There's a camera at the home plate looking up at the batter. They got mics in every base. They have parabolic mics everywhere. They bring the sounds of the game to you to go along with the visuals. Well, there's a that takes a long time to set up, man. People got to run wires. People got to run cables. So even if there's nobody there, they still have to go around to the stands, the bowels of the stadium, anywhere that coronavirus might be living on, they have to brush up against physically. And you cannot always remember not to touch your face when you're on, on a crew because you're focused and you fall into bad habits. And this is what we have to guard against. And this is what people don't really understand about the machinations of sports. When you look at a football game or a basketball game, you're talking about some football games are 25, 30 cameras. You know, even if they cut it down to bare bones, you're still going to expect more cameras. It, yesterday I was watching ESPN. They had, a, um, they had a whole series of fights. It was, you know, binging on fight week. Had Hagler Hearns. They even went to Ali Frazier. I'm watching the Ali Frazier fight in 1971, Mass Square Garden. And I joke because I have a good friend of mine who is a head utility for uh, Showbox. And Showbox uses probably 20, 25 cameras. Um, not all of them. Obviously, they have the ring cameras, but they also have a ring of cameras which hangs from above, above the ring itself to get you shots and all your reverse angles and crowd shots. Well, that 1971, they basically had three cameras. There was one camera for the whole fight that shot the whole fight. And they had ring cameras after the fight was over. So it was a little different than the way we do now. And the production value has to be upped in order to compete with production values of the other sports. NFL films set the bar high as far as production value, what we expect. And Fox Sports has taken that to another level with their broadcast. And so even the local broadcast, SNY, yes, yes, they expect that too. So Without the fans there to react, if it's a ninth-inning game in Arizona and, you know, your team gets a base hit to win it and you hear crickets and all you hear is the players jumping up and down, well, the images better be good to hold your attention. I'm telling you, even if you haven't seen baseball in a while, you're going to get tired of that 
real soon. And you're going to go to streaming. And that's the downfall that baseball has over this length of time because the season is so long. Um, And baseball builds its momentum as you get closer to September and October. And without that momentum, I just don't think it's going to be able to – to maintain the audience. And to be honest, guys, in, in three or four months, if this continues, we're going to actually start to settle in to the images we have been seeing for the last three or four months. So the thirst for that might not quite be there as much. Well, you know, those are all really good points. And, you know, Phil, thank you for bringing to light the amount of work that goes on behind the camera. You know, in, in the job I do, we do a lot of video production for different purposes, and so I've had the the opportunity to see that. And, and obviously what we do is on a much, much, much smaller scale than, than sports production, but the amount of people who are, you know, people putting tape on the floor, people doing post-production, people doing cameras, people doing mics, people miking the, the, the uh the speakers and all that stuff and lighting, it really is. There'll be a lot of people exposed. Um, so I think, you know, we, we had a good round table on that one. So um, nice segue to where I wanted can to go. I just, can, I just, can I just really quickly, before you uh, segue, um, ha- like he's bringing up also just how blue-collar, whether it's sports entertainment industry or the entertainment industry in a whole, you know, the, you hear whether in, in politics they separate it with, like, you know, the Hollywood elite. They're forgetting when they, when they rail against Hollywood and they rail against the, the entertainment industry, they're forgetting who really is behind everything. And it's as blue-collar as any folks out there. True. No, it's true. And, um, and so these are really good points that have come out. And, and it is a nice segue and by the way, you're listening to the Messian Podcast 51st episode with Sam Rich and Mike, and also our special guest director and Mets fan, Phil Maylard. So I'd like to go next to our buddy, Jeff Wilpon, who was in the news this week, and it ties to this idea about playing in front of the stadia, right? Um, so Jeff Wilpon said that, well, if we do get going and we do play in front of no fans and we play, whether it's Florida, Arizona, wherever it might be, uh, that the players take a pay cut because we are going to be bringing in less money and they should participate in that and they should take less money in return. It only makes sense, right? It's only fair, right? And so the number I've seen, now who knows what the actual number is exactly, but the number I've seen is that ball, ball teams, ball clubs make about 40% of their revenue roughly about 40% of their revenue on fans, like, you know, buying tickets, buying hot dogs, parking, mature, uh, merchandise you might buy at the ballpark. That's us. Let's say that's 40%. So 40% of the revenue is automatically gone in this environment of playing in front of no fans. Okay. So Jeff Wilpon says, well, the players should take a pay cut. And Scott Boris immediately shot back and said, the agreement signed on March 26th, the day that you know probably rings for all of us, would have been opening day, stated that the players will get a prorated salary if we play in 2020. So if we play 81 games, they get half their salary. You know, whatever it is, they'll just get their full salary, but prorated. Um, basically, Boris was saying, Jeff, you know, go back in the corner and, and be quiet, and we'll ask for your, you know, we want your opinion, we'll ask for it. So, but I, where I'm going with this is, Phil, I'll start with you on this one. Um, 
what are your so think about everything I just said. An agreement was signed, salaries would be prorated. Not cut, but prorated. Um, what do you think about the relative fairness of that to the players and the owners, seeing that there will not be that revenue stream that fans do produce? And what about the irony of the Mets owner talking about how he wants to pay less? Is that just like so in a terrible way ironic, Phil? Talk to me about that. Well, I, I, I am not a big Jeff Wilpon fan. I think he's uh, tone deaf. I think he's out of out of touch with reality, his own reality. And there's something, uh, and any of us in that are in the entertainment business, this is a term I used to teach at the New York Film Academy. And there were three things I taught the students the first day. Uh, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. And there's something important called ego management. And that means you have to manage your own ego as well as the egos of the people around you. And Jeff Wilpon lacks ego management because he doesn't get it. He never has gotten it. And I think, to be honest, his things he has done, decisions he has made, has hurt this ball club as a Met fan uh, more than anything else, more than Madoff, more than all that thing Jeff Wilpon uh, is, is is the guy that's undermined a lot of stuff. So uh, Boris is right. It's a prorated. I think that's the way it should be. For the games, it's pay for play. Whatever games they pay, play, they should get paid. I think um, the thing about what the major league teams are forgetting is the minor leagues are really the foundation for what the major league teams pull from. And minor league players have not gotten a check since last August. So if you expand the rosters, uh, as they said, they're talking about expanding it to what, maybe 30, 30, 35 people, 40 people. How will those guys get paid? You know, are you going to take, you're going to make, you're going to get, take uh, a minor league players who are not added to the roster and give them a, a, a pay cut <laughs> based off of what, what the hell are you mumbling about? I mean, I don't, I don't get it. You know, um, these guys are sitting around, you know, trying to get jobs which can't be had because the minor league system is, is, is crumble. And uh, I believe it was a player for the Texas Rangers put up, I think, a million dollars. And I think he was, I think every player uh, in the minor league system for the Rangers got like $1,500. And when you think about, I think it was less than that. I think maybe $500,000. But when you think about that, if there's, th- if there's 25 players in the major league roster and each one took 500000 and paid the minor league players, that would help them m- make it through. But that's a player. That wasn't the owner. That wasn't the, the multi-billionaire or the billionaires talking about that. That was the players because they, when they look at themselves, they see themselves in those minor league guys. They understand the struggle. They understand the bus ride. They understand waiting for the call. They understand that now a lot of minor league players – might never make it to the show, even if they could, because that season is going to be gone. So uh, what Jeff Wilpon is talking about, nickels and dimes, he is so, so not even a realm of reality. He actually disgusts me, to be honest. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm Horseshack right now. I'm, I'm Horseshack right now, Rich. I'm Horseshack, okay? I, I'm going to you next anyway, so go ahead, Arnold Horseshack. <laughs> Listen, Jeff Wolf needs to have a strategy for life, and this is the strategy. 
will what I'm about to say make me look like a douchebag? And in this particular instance, he would have gone, yes, yes, it will make me look like a douchebag. And, and another thing, Phil brought up a great word that I always use about this, this family, uh, and, but, but it all goes back to Jeff primarily and specifically, although you have to think sometimes about why Fred's let him get away with it. Because, you know, he's a parent, he's proud, you know, you can't, you can't, I guess, take that part away from it. But tone deaf, Jeff Wilpon is as tone deaf as anybody I've ever seen. And he makes this ownership look as tone deaf as anybody who's ever had a ball team. And, and that's all I got to say about the matter. Well, all right, Mike, I know that you might have some interesting thoughts on this, so I'm going to go to you last on this one by intent. Um, what are your thoughts on the comments of the Mets COO, Jeff Wilpon, saying, well, if I'm making 40% less, they should make 40% less, too, after they signed an agreement that they would prorate and not do said 40% less? And, and there's the rub. There's an agreement in place. Everybody knows better except this guy. You know, he speaks of what is ordinarily something that's collectively bargained. He can't talk money like that. Everybody in baseball knows it except him. Uh, you know, he never ceases to miss an opportunity to come off as ignorant, and that's what happened again in, in this instance. He comes off as ignorant. Scott Boris was right. Uh, and, uh, again, any deviations from from the standard contract, well, you know, that has to be collectively bargained. And, and asking these guys to take a pay cut, uh, you know, that's just not something that he should be delving into. That shouldn't even come out of his mouth. Can somebody immediately get him away from the baseball microphone? Just like this, this is enough is enough. Just immediately get Jeff Wilpon away from the baseball microphone. Well, you know, who's going to fire him outside of Pop and, and, and you know, Uncle Saul? Who's going to fire him? That would be nobody, and that's the problem. He's kind of like – we're kind of like the kids, and he's kind of like that embarrassing parent when you're in high school. You, know, you don't want to be anywhere near that parent. You do, maybe the person dresses awkwardly or says awkward things to your friends. That, that's, that's, that's what we're doing as Mets fans. You know, he, he goes around and he just embarrasses the living crap out of, out of the organization and himself and us and everybody. Because, you know, I, when the gyms were open, I would go to the gym and my, my friends there and all the Yankee fans would be like, dude, what's with your team, man? Like, what, why, do they, why does he say this stupid shit? It's just, you know, you can't get away from it. Um, I don't know. All right. Anyway, um, so like I said earlier, you are listening to the 51st episode of the Metzian Podcast with Sam Rich and Mike with special guest Phil Maylard. And I have one more topic, gentlemen, I wanted to go to. Um, it's from the news today, and it's from an article uh, with Peter Gammons. And what he basically was saying is that don't expect baseball to look like anything normal until about 2023. So you're probably, you know, jump falling off your chair with that one. But what he was saying basically is that, well, um, even if they do get going this year, there won't be a minor league season, so you won't have that. Uh, so it won't look the same. And obviously it will look very different, though, fans and all that kind of stuff. And even if 
it's mostly normal next year, God willing. Um, he was saying that owners might push expansion because they're – we just talked about this. They're not making as much money this year. So you might have expansion and or, he said in the article, you might have more double headers. You might have um, – you know, we're, we're single admission double headers, so say they're cutting down on travel and trying to maximize revenue. So you might see stuff like that. And um, and so it's interesting, though, right? It's interesting to hear that we might start seeing, you know, weird things in the schedule, whether it's cutting out some travel or more double headers or weird stuff expansion, because the players will be. Um, will be, I'm sorry, the owners will be seeking to recoup some of the money they would have lost this year. So that's a sobering thought, that this could linger, you know, that we won't have normalcy with a, a normal minor league season, normal major league season, fans in the stands, and the stuff that we are used to, at least in this one article, it was thrown out there that it might not be until 2023. So, Sam, let me start with you on that. Um I think some of that is hyperbole, to be frank. I think it's a little bit over the top, and I think it's you know trying to shock people into reading the article. That's my opinion. There might be some interwoven truth in there, and that's what I'm asking you, Mike, and Phil, to do is think about, okay, well, while that article might be you know kind of poppycock, uh, but w- but wait a minute now. If they go a full season without baseball or uh, you know no fans, reduce revenue, I might see them doing some stupid stuff, you know, like like trying to cut down travel to save money and, and you know, try to do this or, or force expansion more quickly, you know, so this way they could they could soak uh, soak new cities for money. What do you think, Sam? I think that I, uh, because of this virus, have not had sports to watch, and so I've been reading about past sports, past elements of, uh, uh, you know, things that I want to do creatively. And in that, I have found, um, for for instance, you know, even Charlie Ebbets, who, you know, helped keep baseball in Brooklyn while he was still alive. Uh, if you don't know the history, somebody did try to take them away from Brooklyn in the, uh, uh, the, the, the first decade of the 20th century, and Charlie Ebbets kept them there. Now, he did some great things from Brooklyn baseball, uh, you know, but he still wanted Sunday games when he, he didn't have Sunday games because of the blue laws. Um, he, you know, he, he, you know, did a tight, you know, he, he, he uh, had a, a, a tough bargain with uh, the players, you know, everything that you're, you're talking about with owners right now makes perfect sense. If you understand the history of, I guess, capitalism really outside of just baseball owners, um, so I completely buy it. I completely believe it, and uh, I guess I have to prepare myself. But what specifically would you think they would do? Of all those things, Peter Gamma dropped, and there were more in the article. What specifically do you think they might do? Like, what weird thing can you see them doing to try to recoup some money? Well, are, are we thinking that there's going to be like 174? game season at some point is this is this what is the proposal no gammons was saying that they might do things like expand early they might um 
just well, no, the expansion, the expand early, I think, is a great. First of all, I, I actually buy it. Everybody who keeps talking about uh, wanting, in, you know, interleague play to go away or somehow lessen, um, should be a fan of expansion right now. Uh, you'd probably get Montreal back, that's for sure, and I guess let's say a Vegas team or another Texas team. Um, I, I don't know exactly, you know, Brooklyn's not going to get another team. I'll tell you that right now, but I, I do think, um, I would accept expansion and I would accept expansion immediately. And I, I do like the idea and I'm sure they would just go with the Expos again because they, you know, there seems to be a swelling of nostalgia for that. Interesting. So Phil, um, yes, in their infinite wisdom, what do you think the baseball owners might do? To, to mess with our favorite game here and uh, try to recoup some money. Well, I, I, think, I think it is fascinating because at a certain point, uh, they will try to do something uh, kind of outside the box. As I'm looking over the article as we're speaking, I see the cities of Austin, Charlotte, Nashville, and Portland are mentioned to have more residents now uh, that may be able to support baseball teams, again, I, I think it comes down to, and I go back to the TV contracts, because that's where all this, that's where, that's what changed sports uh, in, in America. Um, the, the billions of dollars that ESPN, Fox, and, and uh, CBS pours into TV contracts. So does the expansion affect the TV contracts? Uh, is, there, is it contracted for a certain amount of teams, a certain amount of cities, adding cities and teams? What does that do? You still have the issue of the support individuals, human beings that go along with that. Um, yes, it's going to create jobs, but it's also a learning curve for that city in how to deal with that, uh, deal with baseball and, the, and, and uh, how long a season is. Um, so, I'm not quite sure. I, I think I think next year is really going to tell me something because next year is supposed to be the year of the World Baseball Classic, which I always enjoy. Um, and I'll be fascinated to see, because I think a lot of stuff that we're talking about will be tried. Any changes to the game will be tried if that World Baseball Classic takes place. Um, and I think that's going to be the proving ground for a lot of stuff that they might try to figure out. Um, but, you know, I, I think the minor league, and just to get back to the minor league game, what people don't realize is how there are many cities in this country where that minor league season is really, really important for revenue, uh, for jobs. You know, uh, I'm sure people in Port St. Lucie, a lot of retirees, but there's a lot of older people who their second jobs are doing the spring training games. I mean, here in Brooklyn, I'm sure Mike and everybody else has probably been to Cyclone games, which I love to go to. Um, but there are places where that's the only game in town. The Mets team is in Syracuse. I mean, obviously, Syracuse is a big college town, but there are places where minor league teams aren't, like Binghamton, you know, or places like that. So it's, that's what I don't understand why uh, the, the owners are glossing over uh, what that impact is to those people of those towns and the players. But I, I, I wonder uh, if they will try, because they're talking about consolidating, 
and cutting back on some minor league teams. <clears throat> so I don't know, man. It's going to be interesting. I think the, the the collective bargaining agreement plays a lot into this. The TV contract plays a lot into this. I think uh, by the end of this summer, we'll probably have a better idea of the, what direction they're headed into. Um, and maybe the owners will get their head out of the sand and realize something. And, that, and if they're smart, they would talk to the commissioner of the NBA because he gets it. He gets it. He gets the marketing aspect. He's trying to do different things. It's a smaller footprint basketball than baseball. But the point is it's the thought process which goes along with it. And part and, part and parcel of that is because I think Adam Silver realizes that a large base of his fans, all minorities who come from different economic situations, but they still have to be catered to as far as their sports thirst. So I think it's a little different. It's not as it's not as largesse. It's not as I'm above here. It's not a class system per se. Um, so you can even hear from the different owners of basketball teams how they're approaching their season and a way to keep their fans engaged. And I think baseball needs to take a page out of that and stop being so stuffy. I hear you. Mike, you typically have some good thoughts on the owners and, and how they go about things. So um, do you think that it's something they would do? I mean, do you think – let me start with that. Do you think they would really start pulling strings next year to alter the game for the simple purpose of putting money back in their pocket? And if so, you know, what might be a thing or two you might see them doing? Uh, without a doubt, if history has taught us anything, is everything they do is for – uh, the great American dollar. Uh, they're in a business, and everything is about business growth and business revenue. Uh, let's not fool ourselves. They're, they're, when it comes to baseball and, and fan consideration, they're not that benevolent. Uh, it's a trickle down. Whatever they do, you know, uh, if it works, we cheer. If it doesn't, we boo. But uh, believe me, <laughs> what they do is in you know pursuit of the almighty dollar. Everything is on the table, Rich. I, I do believe that, especially with Fred Manfred in place. And, you know, you might liken this to the great correction, you know, as they apply it to the stock market. This might be the great I like correction. I, I think, uh, you know, the way baseball has evolved over the modern era, the expansion era since 1961 with the Angels, uh, and even in the 40 and 50 years prior to that, I, I, I think everything the way it's evolved, you know, some organizations, they maintain seven minor league teams. Uh, I think they no longer want to do that. Uh, that's why there was a big cupola about, you know, uh, reducing minor leagues and, and, and you know, uh, retiring some te- teams and, and et cetera. So, again, the great correction, everything that they want to do, I think they're going to try to implement it uh, this year, next year, and the year after. I think Peter Gammons might be on to something that this might be, you know, a, a, a two-, three-year transformation. They may not try to jam everything down our throats all at once, uh, but most definitely this is that – this coronavirus, this work stoppage, this condition that the game is presently in, uh, I, I think is their great opportunity. Uh, not that I agree with it, but it's, they may view it as a great opportunity to reshape the game uh, in their uh, in their best view 
uh, you know, whatever that may be. Uh, expansion, I fully believe that's on the table. Uh, without a doubt, expansion is on the table. Uh, I expect it. So let, let's see how the game, you know, changes. Uh, and we may not like the changes, you know. Uh, Marketing 101, they have us. They're not trying to win us over. They're trying to win the newer and younger generations. So uh, it's going to be interesting. Excellent analysis. You know, I I read the article only an hour before the show, so I didn't think of it that way, but you make a great point that they could use this as a springboard into changes they wanted to make anyway, whether it's fewer minor league teams, whether it's, oh, God, the universal DH hurts me to say that, or anything else, Um, you know, realigning divisions to minimize travel to save money that way, Um, you know, any of that stuff. But it could be that they – that. Maybe they don't express it quite like that, but they use this situation to implement changes that they've wanted to skew things in their favor. So that is a very good analysis of it. All right, gentlemen, so we have covered the three topics I wanted to cover. Um, We have about 13 minutes left, Mike. I believe there were a couple of questions that came in from our listeners. Um, If you would be so kind as to throw those on the table for us, and we'll take a crack at them. Well, in our discussions, I think we pretty much covered them, but let's give acknowledgement where it's due. Big Red Ruckus wanted to know, what's the status of the players' organization and owners reaching a settlement on salaries? We discussed that with Jeff Wilpon, but if we want to take another quick, uh, you know, toss around the table. Well, I'll jump in on that one. And I think that with the upcoming collective bargaining agreement, if we want labor peace in this game, I would advise the owners not to mess with this. You signed a, you signed a contract, you, know, you signed an agreement for prorated salaries. Don't let Jeff Wilpon talk you into trying to go back to the union for reduced pay. That's my opinion. And like I said before, this is collective, it's a collectively bargained business. He has no business uttering those words. That has to happen at a table with two parties coming to an agreement. Foolish of him. Uh, let's move on to Jeff Cohen. Uh, first of all, he wanted to know how we were all doing. Uh, part two of his question, gut reaction on the alternative schedule and dissenting players refusing to play. We touched that on, touched upon that very lightly as well. Well, um, you know, yeah, go, go, go ahead, Seth. Well, I was going to say that the, the players refusing to play really comes down to them not wanting to be away from their families for four months or however long it goes. And I can understand that. You know, a couple, Zach Wheeler has said, I'm not missing, you know, the, uh, the birth of my child. A couple of other players have said, this is ridiculous. I don't want to be away from my family for four months. So um, it's definitely out there. It's definitely a point of contention. You know, let's face it, the CDC is saying, you know what, you probably could do this, no fans, but we think it's safe to do it, you know, with, with uh, the production crews and all that stuff. Okay, great, but even you know, even though the union has said, okay, we'll take a prorated, have they agreed to that? Have they agreed to sequestering the players, and will that be a problem? That's my thought. Sam, go, go please. No, I mean, I don't think I can touch on something that's, that's as uh, good as that. You know, it, it, I, I think that this is where it comes down to the idea that you've already lost some of this momentum from – any player or whatever momentum you want to talk about, whether it's it's macro or micro, 
I, I think that it comes down to as much as we want baseball back, maybe we do need to take this moment to both read history and watch it. Yeah, I'd like to add to that. I think, um, you know, players like Zach Wheeler can afford to sit out a year or so. Um, if they try to do this, and I could, I'm going to talk about on, on, on the people behind the lens as we talk about. People in production, if someone said we're doing 14 games or 14 parks in, in, in Arizona or Florida, they're going to go. They're going to go, man, because that's money. You know, you're talking about guys, camera guys making I, – I, I'm not sure what the camera guys on a regular broadcast do for the Mets, but at least at the bottom line, 450 for 10 hours. Um, and uh, union guys, engineers, technicians, you know, they make a pretty good salary. So despite some of the fears and um, – possible repercussions about being around that virus, guys are going to go. And it's almost like too tempting for them not to go and put themselves at risk because that kind of money and that kind of situation is not available for everybody. And uh, like my friend Duke said, they're going to have to fly people in from all over the country to get those things done. So, uh, for just the players themselves, I think people like Zach Wheeler can afford to sit out. There are guys, Peter Alonzo. Peter Alonzo's will make it 500 Gs. After taxes, what you bring home, three and change. He might be able to get some uh, some endorsements to tide him over. But there's other guys who can't. So it's going to be fascinating. And whatever the players decide, they have to keep the minor league players in mind to whatever agreements they have because they understand that they're part of this too, and they can't overlook them. So um, I don't know. It will be fascinating to see. I think the next three months will tell a lot. Agreed. Mike, any other questions that we have? I'm, uh, I'm good. Uh, very satisfying discussion. Very good. All right. So, hey, and, and just a shout-out to everybody who sends questions in. We really, really appreciate it, and and especially at a time like this where – and we don't have live action on the field to talk about. So it shows uh, your engagement. We really appreciate that, and we appreciate your joining the discussion. And, of course, people are always welcome to call us and join in live. So as this is the 51st edition of the Metzian Podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, we like to talk about players who wore the number corresponding to the number of the podcast. There aren't a lot of Mets who have worn 51. There are not. Um, so as I have it, Mike Maddox, Mel Rojas, Rick White, um, all pitchers, Jack Leatherstitch, another pitcher, Jim Henderson, another pitcher, and guess what? Paul Seawald, yet another pitcher. So we could say there's a commonality that all the players who have won 51, according to my list, are all pitchers. And so what we like to do is, uh, you know, if you have a thought on any one of these guys, any, any little anecdote or what you thought of with this particular player, we don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to jump in on one of them. I wanted the Mets to get Mel Rojas in the worst way. He was a lights-out closer with the Expos. I mean, this guy, you know, he, he was like Bruce Suter. He came to the Mets, and there was kryptonite. He couldn't get anybody out. It was ridiculous. Why did this guy, this guy, Robbie Alomart, I mean, why did this guy forget how to pitch the minute he put on the blue and orange? I don't get it. 
this guy, look at his numbers. He was devastating as an expo, and he couldn't get anybody out as a Met. So anyway, that was my little rant. So, uh, all right, Phil, let's go to you. Any of those folks wearing number 51, anything pop out to you? Yeah, well, obviously, Mel Rojas, I think he's responsible alone for the sale of Pepto-Bismol in the city of New York City uh, because he was uh-uh. absolutely right. He was the absolute worst. And the worst part was the look on his face when he came in. You just And, and I, I don't think about I'm not a violent person, but I wanted to punch him in the grill, man. I just couldn't stand his <laughs> face when he came in. I was like, Judas Priest, you suck. <laughs> you know, uh, it's funny because... The number 51 is not a very good number because none of the people that I'm looking at the list now, I think there's 26 Mets that have won that, really had an outstanding career. I thought Lance Johnson for a minute played pretty well for the short time he was with the Mets. Um, you know, Roy McMillan was there for a couple of years. He was okay. Um, but really, that number is like, a, it's like Death Valley. So if I was a player, I would never take that number again. <laughs> Turn it around to 15 or something. Mike, how about you, number 51? Jack Leatherstitch, watched him come up the minor, not watched him, but followed him up the minor. Big arm, big strikeouts. You know, you always hope that these guys make the parent club and and help out in the bullpen, but, hey, he blew it out, and that was the end of that. Just goes to show that these prospects, none of them are guaranteed. Remember his his handle on Twitter was Leather Rocket because he threw so hard and and when he did come up he did look pretty good, but yeah. uh, but it just didn't work out. Sam, how about you for number fifty one? You know I think this is where you're really getting into the interesting conversations of the Mets uniform number because you know it's easy to talk about number forty one, but I mean this is a very fascinating from a coaching standpoint especially list, you know, you really have nobody that you can say takes number 51. It's funny because when you look at Mookie Wilson having it in uh, 1997, you think that that he probably had number 51 because he was a coach during the time that Lance Johnson, I believe, who had number one, who was also on this list back in 1996 and only for one day. So, it, you know, and, 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 you know, shout out to John Springer for assembling this list. He really combs Mets history. You know, you have names like Dick Sisler, who, uh, you know, somebody who had to remind me over here on Ultimate Mets, uh, you know, he was a whiz kid teammate at Richie Ash- Ashburn, and the, his home run off of Don Newcomb on the final day of the 1950 season is still referred to Philadelphia's shot heard around the world. And, you know, it, it's it's a really interesting list. And that way you also have another uh, ex-Dodger, Cody Lovigetto, on here. Wes Westrom, who is a manager for the Mets. Um, and um, uh, Chris Chambliss, if somebody can, can confirm this, in 2002 was a coach for half a season. Uh, I don't remember Dave that. Dave Hudgens. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. Anybody? I don't either. Well, it, you know, according to this, 6-14-2002 to 9-29-2002, so we'll just have to get John on here to explain number 51. Uh, Chip Hale is here. You know, there's a lot of coaches going on here. And, you know, Dick Sisler is is one of the more fascinating ones because he's not really remembered as a Met. Uh, he, was, he was coach, uh, according to this, he wore the number 4579 till 10-5-1980. Um, and if you guys, you know, who who lived through that year, want to touch on that a little bit before we go. 
Well, oh, um, I don't know, Mike. Did you have anything? What's that? That was Dick Sisler you were mentioning? Yeah, yeah. I don't really remember. Oh, man. That's a shame. I don't remember. Yeah. I, I think that were those the Lee Mazzilli years and the Lenny Randall years? <laughs> because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so a lot of stuff was not too memorable from those years, man. Uh, we were pretty awful. So, um, geez. Were those the Ray Sadecki years or was Ray Sadecki before that? I think it was before that. Sadecki was the uh, earlier 70s. Earlier 70s. Uh, uh, well, back then, uh, they all ran into each other pretty much those years, so I, I wish I could remember. Now, it, it's an interesting number, and um, I was looking at Mel Rojas' stats. I mean, they're unbelievable. <laughs> he, as, as an expo, he had a season where he saved 30 and 36. His two years with the Mets, ERAs of 5-1-3 and 6-0-5. And I know ERA is a little weak on a relief pitcher, but, I mean, come on. You know, how, how do you fall off the table that quickly? Well, gentlemen, it has been an absolute pleasure talking uh, baseball with you. I've, my mind has been off the current world situation for the last uh, hour or so that we have been we got off the coronavirus talk sports. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. And this is the end of our 51st episode of the podcast with Sam Rich and Mike first. I'd like to thank Phil Maylard very much for joining us tonight. And, Phil, You're before welcome. we do our last word, if you could remind people uh, what you do and where you are and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, we, I am a director. We're also developing content. Tomorrow Media is my company with uh, Rod Houston. I have four other partners in that company. Uh, everybody has different disciplines. Uh, uh, our, our editor is Andy Tolbert. Ed, Andy actually is an editor for the WWE. He's post-production supervisor from there. Speaks five different languages. Dave Belgrave with a company, worked for Def Jam Records. Uh, his background is in the music industry. And Rod Houston is, uh, is a top voiceover talent. You guys probably hear him multiple times a day. He does uh, promos on CNN, especially with Sanjay Gupta. He's also the voice of the Golf Channel. Um, he was the voice of Verizon Wireless for 10 years. He also used to do the Budweiser Frog, so you hear, you hear Rod a lot. And uh, we are now, like I said, in production. We've been shooting for the last few years this documentary, The Mighty Sparrow. We are working on uh, several other, other projects. As you know, it's always, um, it's always throwing spaghetti to the wall, but I think, you know, we have a couple of good things we're chewing on right now. So, um, and during this time, I, I tell everybody, look at the opportunities presented to us. The virus is, uh, you know, I call it mental judo. You know, judo is a martial arts where you use your opponent's strength as his weakness, and it's time to kind of sit back and take a lay of the land and look at what opportunities are available. And now is the time to reach out to, to folks, reach out to your people, reach out to friends. Uh, like Sam reached out to me and see if there's any traction. And anybody listening uh, that's what I would suggest you do with this time before things really start to hit the fan. Take the next two or three months and figure out what I want to do, where I want to go, what have I always been interested, what have I always been interested in, and how do I get there? And uh, and use that to your advantage. Very good, excellent advice. So we always end the show with a last word, and so Sam, 
Let me go to you first. What is your last word tonight as we uh, continue to muddle our way through this uh, this unprecedented time of uncertainty? Uh, momentum, uh, you know, kind of echoing what Phil was saying. Find yours however you can uh, through this really troubled time. You know, uh, uh, adversity makes the the human. So we'll see where we go from here. Excellent. Uh, Phil, what would be your last word for tonight? I would go back to the Reverend Jesse Jackson, keep hope alive. Um, and that means is, you know, you have to wake up every day and say, well, you know, uh, I was blessed to wake up this morning. Um, despite whatever's looking at you, keep optimism alive and, uh, and go after the day, tackle the day. Excellent advice. Mike. As one of my co-conspirators on the podcast, bring us home. What's your last word for tonight? Sam, I, I think this is a good time to reissue the seven Ps. Proper prior planning prevents piss-poor performance. That goes for baseball, how we handle this uh, pandemic, you name it, it applies. Uh, and very quickly, you know, in honor of Phil, our guest this evening, a shout-out to Crown Heights, a neighborhood so incredibly rich in baseball history dating back to the 1850s. I passed there many, 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 many times uh, in my work travels, uh, and I'm always doing my investigating, trying to dig up something new. Very good. And thank you to the three of you. Thanks to everyone listening, everyone who will listen to the archive, for being part of the 51st episode of the Metzian Podcast with Sam Rich and Mike a coronavirus slash Mets special. Um, Not actually a special, but a coronavirus slash Mets episode. Thank you, everyone. And (laughs) Sam, we're just just a little bit over. Um, And if you want to take us out, the only way we know how, what would that be? Only way we know how and until we can, I will keep saying until we say it to the actual Mets, let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Good night, everybody. Let's go Mets and good night, everyone. Thank you. Bye now. Take care. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.